Section 21 of The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Supplementary Chapter An Objective Revelation Necessary as a Means of the Moral Culture of Mankind. Part 2. This brings us to the connected subject of faith, by which objective divine truth becomes subjective in the soul. Faith, or credence, like sign language, distinguishes between man and irrational beings. The word credence may be more appropriate as a general term, while we apply the word faith in a moral sense. Animals receive knowledge by sensation only. Man receives knowledge by sense and by credence. Almost the whole of man's acquired knowledge he obtains by crediting the testimony of others. In relation to God, and the objects of the spiritual world, faith is the only exercise by which we can know them. These are not cognizable by the senses. The being of God may be admitted intuitively, but the character of God can be known only by faith, and it is the character of God, not the being of God, that is the element of moral culture. In order to the moral effect of the divine character upon the soul, we, quote, must believe not only that God is, but that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Quote. God has so made man that his moral nature is moved and his moral character controlled by faith. If he believes, whether falsely or not, that his neighbor is a bad man, he will feel towards him as if it were so. If he believes with an assured faith certain things in relation to God and duty, he will feel and act as he believes. If a man has faith in truth, he will have a true conscience. But in so far as his faith is false, his conscience will be false. And in relation to duties due to God, if a man has no faith at all, he will have no conscience at all. A man without faith is influenced no more in his character or conduct by the existence and character of God than if there were no God. In the light of such truth, which cannot be controverted, every sound mind ought to see that transcendentalism is a moral lie. God has made the soul of man to recognize him as sovereign and his will as obligatory. The animal world reaches up to man and knows no higher lord. The mind of man by faith reaches up to the supreme being and recognizes duty and obligation to him. Thus man by faith and conscience becomes responsible as a subject of the divine government and is thus separated from all inferior things. Sign language and faith are correlated in the moral tuition of man. All human progress depends upon faith exercised in testimony, fixed by the settled import of written language. Without credence, vocal language might exist, and men might communicate to each other their experiences and observations. But credence alone, in connection with fixed signs of thought, raises man to the contemplation of the past, the future, the spiritual, and the divine. But all the objects upon which moral culture depends are without the soul. They are not subjective, but objective. Say, if you will, that the idea of a god is an intuition. But what God is has been matter of credence in all time and with all men. It is unnatural, it is impossible, for man to look into himself for objects of credence. 
the idea is a preposterous one man is created a believing being and faith looks out of self for its objects as naturally as the eye looks out of self to the phenomena of the world of sense but in order that the objects of faith may have subjective efficiency over the affections the will and the conscience man must recognize not only the rectitude but the authority of the truth presented for credence this brings us to consider in connection with faith the office of conscience without the rectitude and efficiency of which there can be no moral culture there are two elements in efficient faith one the form of the fact the other the authority of the fact the fact in order to be efficient within men must be perceived not only as truth but as authoritative truth that is perceived as proceeding from a being whose character we love and whose authority to command we recognize the perception of truth does not impart the moral power or the moral disposition to obey the truth no man in his senses will say that the man who perceives truth obtains thereby a disposition to obey it truth has little efficiency for moral culture unless it be recognized by faith as grounded in the character and communicated to man by the will of god whatever is believed by the soul to be the will of the divine lawgiver revealed for man that conscience will enforce upon the life socrates plato and seneca uttered much valuable truth and truth that was recognized among the people as coming from the highest human sources but what cared men for the utterances of philosophers whose conscience troubles him in our day for not obeying the maxims of the author of lacon or the precepts of living or dead moralists men are equals and truth from merely human sources can rise no higher than the opinions of equals it may be it generally is believed as truth but it can have no moral sanction as obligatory upon the life and therefore can have little influence upon the soul as an element of moral culture the greatest difficulty with men is not that they do not perceive truth men perceive much moral truth by the force of their own reason and they assent to much more than is perceived by others colton wrote more moral maxims than any man of his age and violated them all instead of the perception of truth being moral culture in his case it was as in many other cases only a light that revealed a deeper debasement a revelation of truth concerning god and human duty is necessary but power or disposition to obey the truth is the greater want is an absolute necessity in order to the moral culture of the soul a perception of truth without love and obedience is demoralizing a perception of truth which moves the heart and the will is the process of moral culture both experience and revelation agree in the things which have been said the teachings of the messiah himself had no reformatory or sanctifying power until men believed that they were sanctioned by the godhead this jesus frequently affirmed the disciples were taught to expect that when the resurrection and the advent of the comforter should have attested the divinity of his mission then men would be persuaded of sin righteousness and judgment that is when they saw god in the truth which he taught they would feel that it was sin to disobey 
the words which he had spoken unto them would become spirit and life to their souls when they were received as the word of god now let us condense and remember the facts which we have considered the character of conscience in all religious duties depends upon faith without faith it has no life with a false faith it is corrupted and therefore a curse with a true faith it is living and pure conscience in itself is a most potent power but it is a blind power it enforces the conduct dictated by a man's faith whatever that may be but its power for good or evil comes only with a sense of the authority of god it will enforce no duty nor produce remorse for any neglect of duty in regard to god unless faith affirms the act to be sanctioned by the will and authority of god a sense of right exists in most minds and consciences so enjoins a right practice towards men until the mind becomes darkened by a false credence or a wrong practice but where no faith exists conscience never enforces a wrong towards man as a sin against god and even in relation to the duties in life which we learn by experience the conviction of right is often very inefficient and in relation to the highest social duties a false credence often makes wrong to be a duty or a privilege in relation to god therefore and religious duty faith is the only guide of conscience and in relation to the practice of right towards men and more especially the maintenance of right social principles man is a weak and wandering spirit and when his conscience dies or is perverted by a false credence or a wrong practice he has hope of rescue and purity only in a revelation which faith may receive as the will of god and which conscience will then enforce as duty the violation of which is sin footnote a fact of importance in this connection it may be profitable to notice a fact both in revelation and in human experience it is not a link in the argument but it may aid our conviction of the vital importance of the subject it shows likewise the relation of this subject of divine culture to the fact stated in an introductory paragraph that culture of one being must come from another superior to itself thus man cultivates nature and god cultivates man it is a law of man's nature that when truth is perceived in the mind and its obligation acknowledged if obedience be not yielded the conscience grows less potential to enforce the duty it is a retributive principle incorporated into man's moral constitution that sin being persisted in against light and obligation the light becomes darkness in the mind and the sense of obligation dies in the soul this is a natural law but a sense of god's spiritual presence reverses this law the influence of the holy spirit awakens again the dying conscience and illumines again the darkening mind the evil of sin is again seen and felt the dead conscience is awakened by the presence of god and the soul that was sinking under the moral paralysis of sin is offered rescue and called to heaven reader this is your hope the miraculous interposition of the divine spirit and footnote from the preceding considerations we might at once deduce a conclusion in favor of the objective revelation as a necessary requisite in order to human culture but this conclusion would be a general one and many who would assent to the general conclusion 
might not agree that the New Testament is the only perfect and the ultimate revelation of divine truth. Before, therefore, we endeavor to show the adaptedness of the Christian scriptures as the only system of truth, by which man's moral nature can be rightly and fully developed, let us notice, in connection, some of the views by which we have argued the necessity of an objective revealment of divine truth, in opposition to the false notion that a knowledge of the divine character and of human duty are revealed subjectively in the soul. Man is created conscious of imperfection and capable of culture. Man can receive moral culture only by the aid of signs of moral truth embodied in written language. Man may have by nature an intuition of the being of God, but he has no knowledge of the character of God, but that character has been revealed in accordance with the process of linguistic development and in adaptation to man's nature and wants in the Old and New Testaments. Man is a being of faith and can be affected by the character and will of God only by the exercise of faith. Faith naturally looks out of self for its objects. The past, the future, God and the spiritual world are without the soul, as revealed by faith. Man is a being of conscience, but the character of conscience is determined by faith. Unless faith sees God in truth, conscience will not enforce it on the soul. But it will enforce whatever faith dictates as the character and will of God, whether right or wrong. Faith is in itself blind. It does not know truth from error, and reason has never had power without revelation to correct its false affirmations. The highest effort of reason is to produce doubt. See chapter 1. It cannot substitute truth for falsehood. Conscience is blind. It is a potential force, but it follows faith right or wrong, and when faith is false, it enforces falsehood in the soul. Both faith and conscience look to God for authority, and until faith sees God in truth, conscience will not convict the soul of guilt for disobedience. Hence, in the moral culture of the soul, everything depends on the revealment of truth. But this truth must come to the soul, not as human opinion, or as the utterance of philosophy, but as truth which faith and conscience recognize as rendered obligatory upon man, by the will and authority of God. Without revealed truth, reason has no data, faith is false, and conscience is corrupt. The erring nature of man's moral powers, without revealed truth, requires a revelation from the Maker. As there can be no moral culture with a false faith and a corrupt or dead conscience, hence a revelation of objective truth, rendered efficient by the perceived presence and authority of God, is a moral necessity, in order to the culture of the human soul. But in order to the moral culture of man, it is not only necessary, as we have seen, that man should receive from a personal God, by faith, a revelation of truth, but certain characteristics in that truth itself are necessary, characteristics which, as we shall now show, mark the New Testament as the inspired, adapted, and final revelation of God to man. In view, then, of man's character and condition, note some characteristics necessary in revealed truth in order to his perfect and ultimate culture. A first requisite in the truth itself, 
in order to moral culture, is, that it should be ultimate and perfect, so that the standard may always be in advance of man's present attainment, and that it should be so revealed as to awaken and encourage aspiration and struggle for conformity to the revealed standard. Every one will allow that a determination of the soul from evil to good, and a struggle upward, is the only method by which man can possibly attain to a better moral condition. But in order to awaken interest and promote effort for moral advancement, truth must be so exhibited as to show us our present moral delinquencies and derelictions. This can be done only by presenting precept and example which are above the present moral condition of the soul. It is self-evident that man cannot advance to a higher position until he is convinced that his present state is a wrong one, and below attainments which he is under moral obligation to make. Divine precept and example stand as the embodied model. The effort, by divine aid, for a higher attainment in holy living, is the process by which the attainment is secured, and the attainment in which the soul finds its happiness in a spirit of love for Christ and labor of love for man, is the culture that the soul needs. And when divinely illumined by truth, it is the culture which the soul seeks. Now do the precepts and examples of the New Testament furnish authoritative objective truth of this character? Are they such that while they encourage and aid, they will always be in advance of the soul, leading it up to moral perfection? About this question there can be no controversy. No man dare deny that if the spirit of the New Testament prevailed on earth, vice and crime and want would cease among men. Neither atheists nor skeptics dare deny that the spirit of the Christian scriptures is reverent love for God and self-denying, happy love labor for man. The ultimate good of all men can only be attained by those who possess good of any kind, denying themselves to bring those below them up to the good they enjoy. The New Testament spirit and example is a perfect fulfillment of this requirement. It stands alone, and high as heaven above everything else known to the human mind, in the spirit and practice of self-denying love for the equal temporal and spiritual good of all men. The devil dare not deny that the labor and sacrifice of Christ for the good of men is ultimate. Nothing can be higher, holier, or in any respect better than the precept, the spirit, and the example of the New Testament. It has ever been in advance of human character, and will be till the end of time. It is ultimate in spirit, in precept, and in example. And it is not profane to say that, if there be any other revelation, or if God give any other, it must be a worse one, because there cannot be a better. There is another requisite in the character of revelation necessary to human culture, which we have assumed, but which we will now notice more fully. That requisite is, that the ultimate standard of duty should be given in the form of example. We need to know not only what we ought to do, but we need to understand the spirit in which a duty should be discharged. A good act may become evil, and have no influence for moral culture, because it is not done in a good spirit. Those who have not the spirit of Christ are none of his. But an example of forbearance, of firmness, of self-denial, of reproof, 
of compassion, of forgiveness, of the manner of conduct in particular circumstances, is necessary in order to lead men to understand, and by faith enable them to discharge right duties in a right spirit. See chapter 14. But example, in order that we may understand the motive and the spirit of duty, is necessary in another particular. General precepts have specific applications, and the best minds are liable to err in the application of general precepts to the varying everyday duties of life. Man is so constituted that perfect knowledge of duty in all specific cases is impossible. He needs, therefore, an ever-present guide to which he can refer the decision of what is duty in specific cases. There can be no such guide except it be a model character acting in our circumstances. The life of Christ is the infallible standard of reference for sinful men acting in a world of sinners. Suppose an absent father should leave his son to manage his affairs during his absence. It would be impossible for him to give his son specific directions in relation to all cases that might arise in the varied duties of the farm during a long absence. The son, however, has seen the example of his father. He knows perfectly the motives which governed him and the spirit he manifested. In the application, therefore, of his father's general precepts to specific cases, he involuntarily, naturally, dutifully asks himself, What would my father do in this case? What would he have me do? Thus the knowledge of his father's character, life, and spirit guides him in the application of precept to practice, while at the same time it reveals the motive and the spirit in which the act should be done. Other requisites in the character of revealed truth might be added to these, but we will not prolong the chapter. We might show that there should be elements to awaken hope and courage in those who seek the mark of the prize of the high culture, given in the life and spirit of Jesus, and that these elements accompany the precept of the New Testament. We might show that the question, what is truth, on moral subjects, can never be settled in any individual mind, except by faith and divine authority, and an ultimate example, and that these are given in the written scriptures. We might show that there can be no culture of the soul, except the motive to action be benevolent. That love of Christ makes God the motive, takes it out of self, and hence acts for Christ's sake are necessarily unselfish acts, and that unselfish action is necessary to moral culture. We have, we trust, already said enough to aid candid minds to the conclusion that the moral culture of the soul must be accompanied by a system of truth, revealed objectively in written language, by divine authority, and that the Christian scriptures contain that system of truth. The scriptures alone possess the characteristics which adapt truth to the ends of moral culture. The believer is made humble by the perfection of Christ's example of love and labor and sacrifice for men, a perfect standard, yet so far in advance of his attainment. Gospel faith, which realizes in the soul that Christ's sacrifice was for him, will mingle gratitude and love with his humility. 
the offer of aid in the moral conflict, of pardon to the penitent, and of divine favor to every one who denies himself and exercises a spirit of affectionate obedience, inspires hope and courage, and gives joy by the way. And then, divine authority, as well as divine love, being in the truth, these govern in harmony the affections, the conscience, and the will. No man can ever make so high an attainment in moral culture that Christ will not be before him still as an example and a guide. And yet no man can be so low in moral culture but that the gospel faith brings him hope, impulse, direction, and a spiritual benediction. And in whatever stage of progress the Christian may be, whether near the beginning of the race, or so far advanced that temptation has little influence, and habits of holy action are mostly confirmed, at whatever stage of attainment those who lay aside every known sin, and looking to the character of Christ as the goal of moral perfection, run with what strength they have for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, all such will receive divine aid and favor by the way. Footnote. The question of perfection, about which good men have often misconceived each other, ought to be considered obsolete. Men can do what they can do, in the circumstances, and God requires no more. The call of God is no more. The requirement is not ultimated perfection, but progressive perfection. Men are called to aim and strive for the moral perfection set before them in the life of Christ. And he who, like Paul, is a perfect runner toward the goal, is perfect in one sense, Footnote to the footnote. This is the plain and undoubted sense of the scriptures. See Philippians 3, 7-16. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, be thus minded. End of side footnote. While not having yet attained the goal, he is imperfect in another. End footnote. Progress is the order of the moral as well as the physical world. See God revealed in the process of creation, etc., Perfection is its end, and the manifestation of God in Christ, revealed in the New Testament, is a necessary element in order to the final consummation. Leave then, reader, the transcendental folly of those who would find the perfect character of God revealed subjectively in themselves, or who seek a perfect example in an imperfect humanity. Such a philosophy is shallow and sinful." It is engendered by selfishness in union with aspiring intellect. Its glare has poison in it, and it dazzles to blind the conceited and superficial thinker. Believe in the Lord Jesus, repent from selfishness, cross your own will, and follow Christ in filial piety to God, and love labor for man, and thou shalt be saved. Conclusion Allow the author to say, in closing, that it is his opinion, that in view of the reasonings and facts presented in the preceding pages, every individual who reads this book intelligently, and who is in possession of a sound and unprejudiced reason, will come to the conclusion that the religion of the Bible is from God, and divinely adapted to produce the greatest present and eternal spiritual good of the human family. And if any one should doubt its divine origin, which, in view of its adaptations and its effects as herein developed, 
would involve the absurdity of doubting whether an intelligent design had an intelligent designer still be the origin of the gospel where it may in heaven earth or hell the demonstration is conclusive that it is the only religion possible for man in order to perfect his nature and restore his lapsed powers to harmony and holiness end of section twenty one end of the philosophy of the plan of salvation by james barr walker